this is the time in the service where we open the scriptures and we listen for what God is saying to us. I know a lot of you don't bring your Bible. I'm going to encourage you to bring your Bible to church and read with me as I read and have it open there as we unpack it together. You can always follow along on the screen. So this morning we are in Zephaniah. And in the book of Zephaniah, this is an Old Testament prophet. It's one of the minor prophets kind of tucked in there in the Old Testament. We're going to read sections from chapter 1 and from chapter 2 and from chapter 3, all right? So I know it sounds like a lot. It's not too much. Uh, First three verses of each of the first two chapters and then verse 12 through 15 of chapter 3. Okay, are you with me? The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Gather together. Gather, O shameless nation, before you are driven away like the drifting chaff, before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the Lord's wrath. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They shall do no wrong and utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Then they will pasture and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. May God add his blessing to the reading and the understanding and the doing of his holy word. Friends, welcome to week four of our series. It's called Countdown to Christmas. Christmas is almost here. Are you excited? Yeah, it's almost here, two days away. We're getting ready for Christmas. We're watching clips from some of our favorite movies. And I wonder how many of you have seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. This is an iconic Christmas movie, a classic, such a good one, made in 1946, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, and it tells the story of George Bailey, and George Bailey ran the building and loan in the town of Bedford Falls, and George's work is important uh, because his work, his loans, allow people in that community to own their own homes, and so that's a big deal. And my father-in-law, by the way, my father-in-law is an economist and he likes to point out all the SEC violations that happen during the movie. But <laughs> we're not going to worry about the Security and Exchange Commission today. We're just going to suspend our disbelief, right? It's Hollywood. Just enjoy it. Quit taking it so seriously, Dan. Okay. So, uh, so It's a Wonderful Life is the story of George. And, and really the story I, to me is George sacrificing his life and his desires and his wants for the sake of his neighbors, right? That's what the story is about, I think. Uh, When George is 12, he jumps into the lake to save his brother's life, you know, the icy water, and George loses his hearing in one of his ears. Um, A little later at his after-school job, George endures a a pretty severe punishment from the pharmacist when he refuses to deliver the medication because he realizes the pharmacist accidentally put poison in the medication. Uh, When George's father has a stroke and dies, George agrees to skip college 
stay home and to run the building and loan. And he gives his little brother Harry his college tuition so that Harry can go away to college. George and his girlfriend Mary, they fall in love and they get married. And on the wedding day, there's a run on the bank. And instead of going on their honeymoon, George and Mary use their honeymoon fund to give money to people in the community who need it to tide them over for a few weeks until things can be worked out at the bank. When someone buys a new house in the community, there are George and Mary show up to help them. George literally helps them move their stuff and uh, shows up with housewarming gifts and to help them move into their new home. So the first scene I want to show you is the scene of the uh, Martini family moving into their new home. Check this out. New house, rent. <laughs> you hear what he say, Mr. Bailey? What's that? I own the house. Oh. Me, Giuseppe Martin, I own my own house. No more we live like a pig in this Paris field. One more, Hurry, hurry. Hey, come on, bring the baby. Oh. Oh. Like a pig. Oh. I'll take the kids in the car. Oh, thank you, Mr. Bailey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, kids. Here. Here, get in here. One at a time. Get right up on the seat there. Mrs. Martini, welcome home. Hello, George. He's always making a speech. Hee-haw! Sam Wainwright. Oh, who cares? Bread, that this house may never know hunger. Salt, that life may always have flavor. And wine, that joy and prosperity may reign forever. Enter the Martini Castle. So, did you catch the Christology? In this scene, you notice what the gifts were? Bread and wine. Hello. Okay, right? So this is a reminder of the table, that we're invited to come and feast at the table on bread and wine. Did you notice Mrs. Martini, when she received the bread, what she did? She crosses herself. She said, I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and the bread reminds us of the body of Christ, and the wine reminds us of the blood of Christ. And then they also give salt. And I'm thinking of how Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And so, uh, part, you know, part of the beauty of this movie is that George is a Christ figure, right? George is a Christ figure. Now, he's not Jesus, right? We're not saying George is Jesus, but we're saying he reminds us of who Jesus is. Because George and Mary, both of them, continually make sacrifice after sacrifice for the good of the people, right? One person makes a sacrifice for the whole community, and so George reminds us of who Jesus is. The end of the movie, the, the climactic scene, $8,000 goes missing. That's supposed to be deposited in, in the building and loan account. And George takes responsibility for it, even though it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault, but he claims responsibility for it. It was his uncle's fault, right? His absent-minded, whoops, accidentally gave it to the evil Mr. Potter. And, uh, of course, Mr. Potter doesn't say anything about it. So the building and loan's about to close. And the good people of Bedford Falls are about to lose their homes. And George is distraught. And so he has too much to drink. And uh, he yells at his kids. And he even contemplates ending it all. And he's standing there on the bridge. And um, his guardian angel, Clarence, shows up. 
And Clarence knows about George, that George's instinct is to serve. So Clarence does this really creative thing. Clarence jumps in the river. So he knows that George will come and save him. And so George does. George goes and saves Clarence. And in the final scene of the movie, everybody, the whole town is gathered around their beloved friend, George, and they have gathered enough money to save the building alone and thereby to save everyone's homes. And I want you to notice in this last scene from the movie how the sacrifice that George has made and even the sacrifice that his friends have now made results in joy for everybody. George Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions. Just said, George in trouble. And tell me. You what is this? Uh, like it's spread like fair. Another run on the bank? Here you are, George. Merry Christmas. There we are. The line farms on the right. The London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh. telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs>
Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Attaboy, Clarence. That slays me every time when a lady comes up and says, I've been saving this money for a divorce in case I ever get a husband. <laughs> that's, that's one of the top ten funniest lines in movies of all time. That is, oh, mercy. So George is saved and the whole town is saved. And I want you to notice, it wasn't just the money that saved him, right? It was the generosity of the people. It was the sacrifice of the people. And they're dumping stacks of cash on the table, but George isn't really looking at that, is he? He's looking at his friends. He's looking at the people who, who he's spent his whole life loving and, and, and getting to know. And he made his sacrifice for them all his life, and now they're making one for him. And George's little brother, Harry, says it really clearly in the toast, right? He says, to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Now, he wasn't the richest man in town. Right? Who was the richest man in town? Mr. Potter, right? The evil Mr. Potter. But he's the richest in friends. He's the richest in generosity. He's the richest in things that really, really matter. He's the richest in joy. Friends, I want to talk to you today about joy, that the Christmas is about joy, that the gift of Jesus stirs joy in our hearts and in our lives. He's bringing goodness into the world, and so the people of God are invited to rejoice, to celebrate, to, to party, and to give thanks to God for this amazing gift of Jesus Christ. So I want to suggest to you today that It's a Wonderful Life is a story of sacrifice that results in joy. Okay, now, here's the thing. The book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament, it's about the same thing. The book of Zephaniah is a story of sacrifice that results in joy for all the people. Okay, so stick with me as we unpack some of this book together today. The book of Zephaniah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's not minor because it's not important, but it's minor because it's short. 12 of the prophets are very short, and the book of Zephaniah is tucked in there between Habakkuk and Haggai. It's only three chapters, and it only takes up four or five pages in your Bible. So you could read the whole thing today before lunch. Yeah? Okay, good. All right. So it's brief, but it's really important. It's an important word from the Lord, and Zephaniah falls squarely in the tradition of the prophets. The prophets come to announce judgment on and salvation for the people. Okay, so judgment and salvation. That's the basic message of the prophets, and it's the same with Zephaniah. So it begins with judgment, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Okay, why so harsh, God? Well, God has been patient with God's people for a long time, right? But even God has limits. And the Israelites have been worshiping other gods. They have been making idols for themselves. They have turned their backs from following the living Lord, and God is tired of it. God is tired of it. Zephaniah prophesies a judgment that is coming against God's own people because God expects better from them, right? He said, I made you. I'm your God. You're my people. I expect better. I expect more from you than from the average person. And, you know, some of us had parents like that, didn't we? 
When we grew up and we went to our parents and said, hey, how about this? And they said, no way. And we said, oh, but my friends get to do it. And they said, that matters not to me because you live differently than them. And you, there's different expectations for you than for your friends. And you guys have those conversations with your parents when you're growing up, right? That's how God is with his children. I will not accept just anything from you. Verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Whenever there is injustice, whenever there is sin, there always needs to be a sacrifice in order to make things right. But I wonder if you can understand, based on what we've read, who is the sacrifice? It's us. It's the people. God says, I'm going to sweep away all the humans from the face of the earth. So, you know, it used to be a, a goat was sufficient, right? A sheep was sufficient. But now God is saying, you know, that is no longer sufficient. Someone has to die for the sins of the people. The, the people are going to be punished. There is, uh, you know, th- there is a payment that is needed, a sacrifice. So, so what can be done? Is, is there any way to avoid the judgment? Because this sounds bad, right? This is bad. Well, chapter 2 gives us a clue. Gather together. O shameless nation, before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord, seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. Okay, so here's a clue. This is what God wants from his people, right? Okay, so first, gather together. All right, that's, that's a sign of worship. The people are gathered together to seek the Lord, okay? Pursue righteousness. Pursue humility. Get on your knees before the Lord. Get on your face before the Lord. And maybe, perhaps, God will spare you. Maybe God will have mercy. Maybe you can be hidden when the wrath of God sweeps over the the face of the earth. Maybe you'll be hidden from that. Now, this judgment is especially harsh on the enemies of God. Look at verse 11. The Lord will be terrible against his enemies he will shrivel all the gods of the earth. That word shrivel sounds bad, doesn't it? God doesn't mess around. God does not mess around. If you're a small g God, this is really bad news for you. And if you worship a small g God, it is time to repent because God is not playing. God takes worship very seriously. God takes allegiance very seriously. Think about the Ten Commandments. Remember the first commandment out of the ten? What was it? You shall have no other gods before me. God does not mess around when it comes to this kind of thing. Okay, no golden caps, right? No no gods of materialism or nationalism. No god of individual rights and freedoms. You shall have no other gods gods. None at all. Now, here's the temptation, I think, friends, on Christmas. Temptation on Christmas is to turn the the transcendent, living, almighty God into a domestic, sweet little baby boy that we can hold and cuddle with. And we say, oh, isn't Jesus so cute and sweet? And he came to bring me sugar plums and sweet dreams. And isn't this amazing? And yes, right, Jesus is a baby on Christmas, but he's the living God. Okay, don't let the the swaddling clothes fool you. Jesus is king, and he is judge, 
and he does not mess around. God is bringing new life into the world, but in order for new life to come, something has to die. We know that, right? I mean, that's basic biology, right? So if, if there's going to be an Easter, you have to have Good Friday, right? There's no Easter without Good Friday. Something has to die. And part of what has to die is our misconception about who God is. Part of what has to die is our, our confidence in our own ability. Part of what has to die is our desire for security in human institutions like denominations or, or governments. Part of what has to die is our complacency and our idolatry and our lack of faith. Part of what has to die is our immaturity. And we've got to grow up. So, is there any hope? This sounds bleak, doesn't it? It sounds bleak. I just tell by the look on your face. You're reacting to it the way I reacted to it. And I read it and I was like, man, this sounds awful. Is there hope? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely there's hope. And how do we know that? Because God is faithful. Because God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Now, things seem bad, right? And they are bad. For Israel, there is idolatry, and there's paganism, and there's faithlessness. For George Bailey, things were bad, right? Because he was about to lose his home and his business and the whole town and even his life. And for some of us, things are bad. And you may not say it out loud to anyone, but you come in this room and your heart is heavy because you're grieving or you're afraid or you're thinking of someone you love, and, and you carry that burden. You, you, you carry it on your shoulders. And so we are weighed down, and things seem bad to us. But I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, God is faithful. God is faithful. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Zephaniah 3. I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They will pasture and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Remember we talked about how Jesus is a good shepherd who makes us go in and come out and find pasture, right? This is a picture of peace. This is a picture of prosperity for the sheep, all the sheep of the house of Israel, all the people of God. And so we're reminded on Christmas, on the other side of judgment, there's forgiveness. And the other side of conflict, there's peace. And on the other side of condemnation, there's acceptance. And on the other side of death, there is life. And the result of this is joy. It is unutterable and exalted joy for all the people of God. Think about it, friends. If I told you that instead of condemnation, you're going to be forgiven, how would you react? You know, if, if the word came to you that instead of dying, you're going to live forever and ever, how would you react? Yes, hallelujah. Thank you, God. Oh, I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. Yes, you're so good to me. Hallelujah, we rejoice. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. Rejoice and sing out loud and let your heart be glad, friends. Three reasons. Three reasons why. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Therefore, you shall fear disaster no more. Do you see the three reasons? Okay, number one, he's taken away the judgments against you. Okay, you're guilty, but you're not being found guilty. Second, 
He's turned away your enemies, not just enemies of flesh and blood, but spiritual enemies of sin and of condemnation and of spiritual poverty in our hearts. And finally, best of all, the King of Israel, the Lord Himself, will be with you. This is a prophet. Remember, this is written uh, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And he's pointing ahead. He's saying, the Lord is coming into your midst. Jesus Himself will be with you. And so we, we say amen and we rejoice. Now, here's the catch. Uh, there's one little detail in, in the prophecy that has not yet been resolved. Right? This is the, the cliffhanger. If this were a movie, this is the cliffhanger part. Um, there, there's one unraveling that needs to be tied up neatly. Remember there was a sacrifice. Okay, Who was the sacrifice? The people. Right? We were the sacrifice, except the story says, okay, he's withheld the judgments from you, so we don't have to die for our sin. Okay? So, who's going to die for the sins of the people? God is preparing a new sacrifice. God says, I, you will not have to die for your sin. Instead, I will offer my son to die for you. Because it's we who deserve it, but he will take it on himself so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to the God who loves us, so that we can have peace and eternal life forever and ever. One man will die for all the people. Now, in the movie, that's the George Bailey character, right? One man sacrifices for the whole community. In the story of salvation history, the one man is Jesus Christ, and he dies so that you can live. Therefore, sing out loud, shout, rejoice, and celebrate with all of your heart. Friends, this is why Christmas matters. This is why Christmas matters, because the Lord is in our midst, uh, because He is rejoicing over your life, because He is restoring your fortunes, and He wants to give you joy. If you don't walk away with anything else this morning, I hope you walk away with joy in your heart, because the joy of the Lord will change the world, and it can never, ever be taken away from you. Say amen if you can. Let's pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks because you are so good to us. And as we contemplate, Lord, what it means to celebrate Christmas, God, remind us that the presents are good and the decorations are nice and the lights are important, but that all of these things point to you and point to your presence with us, God. That is why we use the name Emmanuel. Because we know that Emmanuel means God with us and that Jesus is God in the flesh for us. And so thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, into the world to save us. And we pray it in his name. Amen.